invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with us to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 41 this morning. Now if you would, take your copy of God's Word, stand with us as we read the passage. This is the Word of God. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was once uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with, with an everlasting oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all our witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Father, as we have your word open before us, help us to see great and wonderful truth that's already there. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear the glories of the resurrected King. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Easter Sunday is the day that Christians think about and celebrate the single greatest event in history. Believe it or not, we're not talking about the invention of chocolate eggs or Easter egg hunting. 
but the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. But who is Jesus of Nazareth? If you ask the Encyclopedia Britannica, the answer is, quote, religious leader revered in Christianity, one of the world's major religions, end quote. If you look it up in the World History Encyclopedia, it says of Jesus that he was, quote, an itinerant Jewish prophet from Galilee in northern Israel. But is that all that he was? A religious leader? An itinerant Jewish prophet? Are we really celebrating a holiday because a Jewish prophet came back to life? If so, why are we even celebrating this if we're not Jews? This is not much different than what people said about Jesus in his day, now is it? As you recall, Jesus asks his disciples who people say that he is. And some were saying that he was Moses, some Elijah, some other prophet, all prophets. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he just a great prophet, a moral teacher, a religious leader to you? Maybe he's just a really, really great guy. The events of Easter morning are so important and so profound that without Easter, my friends, we don't even have Christianity. Without Easter morning, the Christian faith implodes and we are all still dead in our sins and without hope in the world. This is true because Jesus was more than just a religious leader but you see, it's very important that we realize that Jesus of Nazareth was a real historical figure, every bit as much as a Winston Churchill or a Johann Sebastian Bach or Michelangelo or Mozart. He existed. He walked this earth in a body like ours. He was born. He slept. He talked. He ate. He bled. He died. He was every bit as human in a bodily sense as you and I, yet without sin. The question of who Jesus is has been the single most important question even throughout all of human history. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? I love the way that C.S. Lewis poses the question. He says that you have three choices when you're answering who is Jesus. He was either a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. Why these three options? Because he claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be sent from God, and the only way to God. If those claims were not absolutely true, my friends, he's not a great moral teacher, he's a liar. Jesus challenged and rebuked the religious elite of his day. He healed countless people. He taught that the whole law could be fulfilled in two commandments. He even predicted his own death. If these things didn't actually happen, and what he said wasn't true, then Jesus isn't just a religious leader. He was an absolute lunatic. And Why would you follow a liar or a lunatic? But if Jesus' words were all true... Everything he said, all of his claims, even that he is the only way to the Father and there is no other way to know God except through him, my friends, then we have one option. It's that he's Lord. And we only have that option because he's risen from the grave. This is the claim the church is founded upon, that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is Lord, Easter Sunday is so important because the resurrection is proof that that's not just a claim. That's not just something church folks say. This is absolute truth. No doubt, the message of Christ crucified is powerless without Christ resurrected. Said another way, Good Friday isn't good without Easter Sunday. The bloody cross is ineffective without an empty tomb. This message is so important that the whole of the New Testament is founded upon both Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. It's because he rose from the grave 
that Christians throughout history can confidently proclaim that Jesus is both Christ and Lord. Not a religious teacher. Not a very moral man. Not a super nice guy who did miracles. He's Christ and Lord. The resurrection is evidence of that. This event set in motion a myriad of important events. And in our time together, I want us to look at the very first Christian sermon that we just read. It's the very first Christian sermon ever preached. And we're going to see five effects of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number one was the birth of the church. The birth of the church. Because Christ is resurrected, the church was birthed. In order to really understand this, we have to get some of the context Our passage begins by Peter explaining what has just taken place. So let us also consider what has just taken place. Jesus told his disciples in chapter 1 that they were not to leave Jerusalem until they had received the promise from the Father. What promise was he talking about? The promise of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Covenant, you see, the Spirit was said to be upon people. They were not indwelt with the Spirit of God as we are in the new covenant. Jews from all over were in Jerusalem observing Pentecost. It was a feast celebrating the wheat harvest. Isn't it interesting that during the festival where they're celebrating the harvest, that this is when God has ordained to reap for himself a harvest of souls. So the disciples and many other Jews from all over are gathered in Jerusalem to observe the feast. The disciples, in specific, are gathered together in the upper room, and they've been praying, waiting for the promised Spirit. And then the day comes. We learn from the first four verses of chapter 2 that when the Spirit was poured out, there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Tongues of fire rested upon each of the disciples who were in the upper room, and they began to speak in tongues. Not tongues like the televangelist on TV who says, I want to buy a Honda 50 times really fast. My friends, that's not tongues. When you hear that, that is made up. That's not what tongues is in Scripture. How do we know that? Because the tongues they spoke in were a supernatural manifestation of the ability to speak in another real language. It was a real language. They were speaking Spanish or Russian or German or whatever the people needed to hear because remember, there is a crowd gathered there from all over the world. And so they are proclaiming Christ in the language that each of the people can understand. Nobody can understand, I want to buy a Honda. This was the birth of the church. The church of the new covenant people of God. It is made up of all of those who were predestined unto salvation before the foundation of the world. All of those for whom Christ died and all who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Both Jew and Gentile alike. But this would not have been possible without a resurrected Christ. If Jesus were still in the grave, my friends, there is no church not building, there is no people known as the church of the living God. There is no free offer of salvation for Gentiles like you and I without the resurrection. So if there's no pouring out of the Spirit, there's also no regeneration as spoken of in Titus chapter 3. And there's no fulfillment of the new covenant promise of Ezekiel 36. The pouring out of the Spirit is indication that Christ has been resurrected. But not just that He's been resurrected, but that He has also ascended to the right hand of the Father where He reigns today. The second effect of the resurrection, the installment of Christian preaching. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. The church was immediately fulfilling the great commission that Jesus gave her in Matthew chapter 28. Isn't that amazing? Jesus gives us the great commission in Matthew chapter 28. And as soon as the Spirit is poured out and the church is birthed, she is immediately 
immediately going and making disciples of all nations. How? Because again, there were many nations represented there at Pentecost. And they were hearing of the risen king in their own language. The church would go on from there to take the gospel to the nations. We see that through the rest of the book of Acts. That brings us here to the beginning of our text that Luke writing, he lifted up his voice and addressed them. In our vernacular, you know how we would say that? Then Peter started preaching. That's what preaching is, after all. It is lifting up the voice and addressing a people. Peter is not the first pope, as many, some religions falsely teach. But Peter absolutely was the first Christian preacher. The word here for addressed is carrying with it the connotation of, of clearly articulating which is noteworthy because the crowds who were gathered were so taken by hearing the, the disciples speak in these languages that some of them were saying they're just drunk. These guys are just drunk. But Luke makes sure to let us know that Peter began articulating clearly to them that they were not drunk. What they were seeing is the fulfillment of prophecy. Peter says, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. In other words, listen, pay close attention to what I'm about to tell you. I want you to notice that the first thing that happens upon the birth of the church is that all of the believers begin to proclaim Christ and then Peter starts preaching. This is at the birth of of the church, we are talking about the foundation of the church. And the first thing that happens is that Christ is proclaimed by the people and preached by Peter. But he doesn't just preach, does he? He preaches an expository sermon, drawing out the meaning of what has been written. This is what every sermon must be. If you listen to a preacher and he is not drawing out the meaning of a biblical text, you are not listening to true Christian preaching. You're hearing something else entirely. And you might feel very encouraged and have butterflies in your tummy, but that is not what Christian preaching was designed to be. Christian preaching is designed to be opening the book and explaining it and giving the meaning. And we see that with the very first Christian sermon ever preached. The apostles instruct the crowds from the Scriptures that what has happened in their sight is the fulfillment of what Joel wrote hundreds of years previous. Isn't that amazing? Prophecy. Hundreds of years in the waiting, and it's being fulfilled here at Pentecost. Now, many of us today like to use the word preach as a pejorative. Well, don't preach at me. It's often used with such a negative connotation, but my friends, God Himself has ordained that preaching be used to bring about the faith of those lost in sin, to instruct and exhort Christians on to holy living, and to encourage and strengthen the faint-hearted. The very thing that God has ordained for His church is the very thing many today do not want. R.C. Sproul said it best when he said, quote, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything, in everything, but that in which God has placed it, his word, end quote. This is why Christian preaching must be centered on, grounded in, focused upon, and entirely about the exposition of Scriptures. After all, that is the model set for us in the very first sermon ever preached. Without Christ resurrected, we don't have Christian preaching. Some people would say amen to that. We could hear a message about the Torah. We could hear motivational speeches. No problem. But you know what we would not be able to hear is the message of Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, buried, ascended, and glorified without the resurrection. That means that we cannot hear the gospel. Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing 
and hearing the word of Christ. Without Christian preaching, we do not hear the gospel, and we have neither of these without Christ resurrected. Number three, the third effect of the resurrection is the pouring out of the Spirit. This takes us into the prophecy that Peter is quoting from, from Joel. Peter tells the crowds gathered that they aren't hearing the sound of new wine, but the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Notice what he says. Look at verse 17 as he begins to go through the text. And in the last days. Allow me to say as an aside here that though Tim LaHaye wrote a wildly popular book called Left Behind in the 1990s, getting everybody riled up and terrified about the last days as though they are eventually coming, the text shows us that we're not waiting for the last days to begin. We are in the last days. So many people are waiting for the last days to just suddenly happen as though you're going to turn on the news one day and there's Tucker Carlson talking about the new Mark of the Beast app. And that's how we're going to know that we're in the last days. Well, Pastor Tucker told me that there's a Mark of the Beast app. So that means that we are in the last days. No, my friend, Peter is telling us that the prophecy is being fulfilled right there at Pentecost, ushering in the last days. We're in the last days right now. The Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection ushered in the Messianic age, or as we also refer to it, the last days. We know this because in the first Christian sermon ever preached, Peter is saying that that is being fulfilled right there. Supernatural and miraculous events are prophesied in the last days by Joel and the pouring out of the Spirit. And they're being fulfilled there in their hearing at Pentecost. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is shown by proofs. The mighty rushing wind, the the tongues of flame, the Spirit-filled preaching. So then the sign that we are in the last days is that the Holy Spirit has been poured out as was promised. Since the Holy Spirit has been poured out, it is evidence that Christ is resurrected, which is evidence that we are in the last days. You follow the train of thought. But we don't have this promise fulfilled without Christ's resurrection. John records for us in chapter 7, verse 39 of his gospel, that the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. All those who believe in Christ were to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. But this would not take place until Jesus died, was resurrected, but not just resurrected, also ascended and glorified at the right hand of the Father. Jesus reiterates this in chapter 16 of John. His disciples are sad that Jesus has said that He's going to be leaving them. And listen to what Jesus says. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. What? For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So then what is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit proving? That Jesus has gone to the Father. He has left. And He has left us. The Helper. The Comforter. The One who will lead us into all truth. But can you imagine this? Imagine being the disciples. And here's Jesus, God in the flesh, and He's telling you, it's to your advantage that I leave. I would definitely, as pious as I would like my answer to be, I am certain that I would say, no! It is to my advantage that you stay You've walked on water. You are the Christ. It's to our advantage if you stay. Because I'm a sinful man and I think in a human way. But Jesus, being God in the flesh, knows if I go, I'm going to give you the Spirit who will be within you. 
Jesus was God with us. Now we have the Spirit of God within us. His Spirit poured into the hearts of Christians. That's why Jesus is saying it's to your advantage. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts the soul of sin and judgment and regenerates dead, stony hearts. And because Christ has risen from the grave, the Spirit has been poured out. And the fact that the Spirit has been poured out evidences the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The beautiful truth of the promise and fulfillment of the outpouring of the Spirit is that this is offered to everyone. It's not just for priests. It's not just for holy men. It's not just for people who wear suits and ties. It's for everybody. It's for the common folk. It would be for the least of these. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And if we are being very honest and reading carefully, looking at all of the miraculous events that are taking place here when the Spirit is poured out, the, the mighty rushing wind, the, the tongues of fire, speaking in languages that people understand this supernatural utterance, if we're being very honest as very careful readers, that's not the most miraculous event that is taking place at Pentecost. Do you know what it is? Verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is the greatest miracle taking place here. All the nations, tribes, tongues, no longer just the Jews. Friends, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are not just church stories. They're not just making for a good Easter card. They are not just historical facts even. These are incredibly consequential events. The Son of God does not don the likeness of man, walk the planet that He created, die for the sins of His people, rise from the dead and back up to heaven, and then everything just goes on as normal. Something changed. Something huge has happened here. Great, incredible things are now set in motion because of Christ's life. And Pentecost and all of the miracles the apostles would go on to perform were just small samplings of the glorious realities of the kingdom of God. The events here of Pentecost point us to the fact that something is different. Something unique is taking place here. Under the Old Covenant, the Jews were God's people. Salvation belonged to the Jews. In the New Covenant, purchased by Christ's blood, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, why did Jesus come to this earth? Why did He die? Why was He resurrected? Why was prophecy fulfilled? Why was the Spirit poured out like this? Verse 21 so that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is easily the best news the world could ever possibly hope to hear. The fourth effect of the resurrection is the fulfillment, of course, of messianic prophecy. His life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all of it was prophesied. We, we think sometimes that messianic prophecy is just that Jesus would come. But all of his life, his death, his ascension, all of it was prophesied. Peter in verses 22 through 36 details key passages from the Old Testament. Key prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled. Now we could surely spend several weeks or at least the rest of this afternoon just studying all of the prophecies that Christ has fulfilled, but we won't do that. And everybody said, oh, thank God. But here we will focus on what Peter is focusing on. In verse 22, we see Peter grabbing the attention again of the hearers. Men of Israel, hear these words once again. This is of utmost importance. Peter is going to argue that the man Jesus, the, the person Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, that he was indeed the Messiah that was prophesied. He wasn't just a guy. That he was the Messiah who was prophesied. 
His argument spans across Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But his first argument is perhaps the strongest one. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? He's a man that was attested to you by God. The language used here can indicate that Jesus was appointed by God himself. And this was proven to be the case how? He says, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. How do we know that this was the Messiah? God himself proved it by working miracles through him. John 10, 37 and 38. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The people got caught up in the miracles. They loved the signs and wonders that Jesus was performing. They wanted to see Jesus heal people. Jesus, do something cool. They loved it. They loved the signs. This is the equivalent of driving out to the airport. You have a flight, a vacation planned, a week paid in Barbados or wherever you want to go. And you drive out to the airport and you see the sign, Lubbock International Airport. And you say, wow, look at that sign. Wow. The airport's that way. If I go that way, it's going to take me to the airport. Can you, do you see this? Do you see the arrow? The way that it's angled? Look at that beautiful sign. And you stand there and you miss your flight. My friend, what went wrong there? You didn't exit. You didn't go down the road. You didn't go to your terminal. You didn't check in your bags. You didn't get on the plane. This is exactly what people do with Jesus. They say, would you look at the signs and wonders he performs? Look at the BMWs that he buys you. Oh, what a great Jesus this is. Oh, wow, look at this. This is amazing. They don't ever believe in Jesus. They just believe in the signs. And they're mesmerized by the signs. And then die and go to hell. Because they did not believe in Jesus. This is how it was when he walked this earth. How much more today? But the people didn't see it. They don't believe him. All of the works are testifying to the reality that this is the Son of God. The resurrection testifies that this is the Son of God. They don't see it. Verse 23. This Jesus, the miracle-working Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They killed him. The Son of God dawns flesh, performs wonderful miracles. They kill him. The Father was proving that this was his Son, and they killed him. This is a shocking verse, because not only do we see the crushing weight of this charge leveled against the Jews, but we also are breathtaking by the sovereignty of God. He says that Jesus was delivered up Listen closely, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was using sinful, wicked people to accomplish His glorious ends. This doesn't mean that the people get a pass. Their guilty blood is on their hands, but they were only able to do this because it was God's plan to kill His own Son. He put Him to grief. The Father's will was to crush His own Son. What the people meant for evil, God meant for good. Verse 24, God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. The people committed this heinous evil of killing the Son of God, 
God raised him up. This is speaking, of course, of the resurrection. God raised up Jesus, vindicating Christ and his message. Romans 1, Paul tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus is not resurrected, if he's still in the grave, then all of his claims to being the Son of God and all of his claims that I and the Father are one are lies. He's a liar. Why would you worship and follow a liar? But he is resurrected, proving that he is the Son of God. The Father resurrected him, saying effectively, Amen to everything the Son ever said. Why does Peter say it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death? Because Jesus is God. Not only was Jesus' life prophesied, not only was his death prophesied in places like Isaiah 53, but his resurrection is prophesied. He quotes here from the Davidic Psalm. Look at verse 25. David says concerning him. It's from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Peter says that this text is not about David. It's about Jesus. This, David wrote it, but he wrote it about Jesus. Look at verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades. What does that mean? Well, Psalm 16 is written in the first person. Isn't that interesting? It's written as though David is the one who is saying it, but he's writing from the perspective of the resurrected Son of God. That's what Peter's telling us as he is expositing this text for us. Surely, David didn't know that this was the person Jesus of Nazareth, but he knew that this was the Messiah. Peter is showing us that David understood that, that he was prophesying of the coming Messiah that he would not be abandoned to Hades. That's a way of speaking about the place of death, the abode of death. Sometimes it's used to refer to hell, but it can also be used in a general way of referring to the abode of death. What's being said here is that the Messiah would not remain in the grave, for the Father would not let His Holy One see corruption. In other words, His body would not decay. And why would it not decay? Because he was resurrected. He was brought back to life. And when Jesus came out of the tomb, he wasn't a wispy, floaty light. He was in a body. He he had a physical body. How do we know? He said, touch my hand. He had a barbecue on the beach. Some fish. Jesus had a physical body. Body, because it was the fulfillment of prophecy. He couldn't remain in the grave because he was God in the flesh. But also his ascension, going back up to heaven, is prophesied. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh, the Father, said to my Lord, the Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In chapter 1, the disciples were witnesses not just of the resurrected, glorified Christ, but also His ascension up to heaven. The angels appear with the disciples as they're staring up into heaven, watching Christ go up. And they say, why are you looking up into the sky? I don't know. Jesus is going up to the sky. This is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. He was ascending to the right 
hand of the Father to do what? To sit at the right hand of the Father until the Father makes Christ's enemies his footstool. My friends, the tomb is empty, but the throne is not. The throne is occupied right now by King Jesus who reigns right now as part of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that Peter referenced in verse 30. God made a covenant with David that he would have a descendant from his lineage sit on an everlasting throne. His dominion would be forever and ever and Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy After having argued convincingly that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah by preaching about his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Peter closes his sermon with a powerful statement, giving us the definitive answer to the question of who Jesus of Nazareth is. Look at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He is both Lord and Christ. Because He was raised from the dead, we have irrefutable proof that He is both mighty King and mediator. That He is both ruler and redeemer. He is both sovereign and Savior. Friends, do you know Jesus this way? Do you know Him as both your Savior and your Lord? Rest assured that you do not have a Jesus who is just your Savior without also having Jesus who is your Lord. That what He says in your life goes. That you say, yes, my Lord. Yes, King Jesus. Whatever you say, I will do because you have saved me from the dead. Because you have resurrected my dead spirit. You have given me a heart of flesh in place of my heart of stone. So whatever you say, my Lord, goes. Is that how you know Jesus? Because if you don't, my friend, you don't know Jesus. You might know an idea of Jesus. You might have this thought that everybody can have their own version of Jesus and it's just fine and dandy. But you can't. You know why? Because Jesus is resurrected. Because of Easter morning. Because of the empty tomb. Because of that, Jesus is the only way to the Father. The only one. We can like it or not, but He's the only way to the Father. The one that they had been waiting for for generations has come. What did they do? They killed Him. An utterly hopeless situation. Can you imagine being in that crowd at that moment? Peter has irrefutably proven that this Jesus is the promised Messiah, and now they are hearing, You killed him. I would imagine there is utter grief falling upon them. Look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, when they heard this, They were cut to the heart as they ought to be. This brings us to our fifth effect of the resurrection is the hope of salvation. What else is there to do if you're a part of this crowd than to be cut to the heart? The word means pierced, stabbed, deeply moved in your emotions. They have been pierced by the sword of truth and rightfully so, they killed the king of glory. Friends, this is what biblical preaching ought to do to each one of us. Cut us to the heart. We live in a time when people don't want cutting sermons. They want nice, friendly, Jesus is your buddy. He just wants you to win. He wants you to get that promotion that you want. He wants you to get a perfect 800 credit score. This is the Jesus that you want. But instead, the Jesus that we have is much better. He is the Jesus who sends forth his word and it cuts you in the heart. When you hear the friendly, motivational pep talks that pat you on the back on your way to hell, that's not preaching, that's lying. Biblical preaching cuts to the heart. The people listening to Peter aren't checking out mid-sermon waiting to go to lunch. They are enthralled 
by what he is saying. And they are deeply moved. Why? Because what he's saying is true. Gospel preaching ought to bring you to your knees in utter desperation, just like it did with these people who had nothing to say except for brothers. What shall we do? What do we do? What you're saying is true. What do I need to do? Get this weight off of me. I feel the condemnation. I feel the weight of my sin. What do I do? And so it should be as we consider the cross, as you stand at the foot of the cross and gaze up at the King of glory, bloodied, beaten, and broken, bearing your sins, you, my friend, might as well have had the hammer in your hands nailing him to the cross. That's how guilty we all are before God. Rest assured, there are no good people. Not good enough to earn salvation. Not good enough to stand before God Almighty and say, let me into your heaven, Holy One. There are none. We are all guilty. It might as well have been you nailing him to the cross, placing the crown of thorns on his head, The truth is we are all guilty before the glorious King. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Without Christ, we are without hope. And as we celebrate Christ being raised from the dead, allow the reality of your own death to weigh on your heart. That you will die one day. I was preaching a funeral recently. And it struck me. That one day, I'll be the one in the box. And there will be a room of people who are still on the other side of life. And on that day, am I going to be standing before the king, worshiping him, glorifying him, because I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Or am I going to be hearing, I never knew you. Am I going to be looking back at a long life saying, well, I did good things. I was a pretty good guy. I paid my bills on time. I voted Republican. I did good stuff. I was nice. I opened doors for old ladies. I was, I was a family man. I was a, a hard worker. Isn't that enough? He'll say, no. You fall woefully short of the glory of God. My friends, what about you? When your body is in the box, where will your soul be? And do you know for certain? Because on that day, friend, every single one of us will realize how holy God is. We will all see how sinful we are in the flesh. Brothers, what shall we do? Look at Peter's response. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Are you kidding me? These people have crucified the Messiah, the Holy One of God. And here is God extending them the offer of salvation? You did this. You killed Jesus. Now come to him and be forgiven. What marvelous, matchless grace is offered to us. We only are offered that grace when we're cut to the heart. And we realize our desperate need before God. Jesus isn't your buddy. He's king. He's Lord in Christ. Have you trusted in this Lord in Christ? Have you trusted in this crucified Son of God? Messiah, Savior, Lord. You, just as much as these people, are offered today that same opportunity. If you never have, my friend, repent before the Lord today. Call upon His name. It matters not how sinful you are. These people are forgiven. The Scripture tells us that 3,000 people were saved. 3,000 people guilty of killing the Son of God are saved and their account is reckoned clean before Almighty God. That can be you. That can be you this morning. 
That you can stand before God guilty as could possibly be, filthy in your own sinfulness, your your wretched self-righteousness, is the moment you trust upon Christ Jesus and turn from your sins, you're washed white as snow. That's the good news of Easter morning, my friends. If God offers salvation to people who killed His Son, then everyone can hear the free offer of salvation. But know this, as Augustine said, that God has promised forgiveness to your repentance, but He has not promised tomorrow to your procrastination. What does that mean? That if you never have come to Jesus right now, Today, this moment, don't tarry a moment longer. Don't presume to repent on your deathbed. Don't presume to repent when you're good and ready. You have the opportunity today, and God has told us that today is the day of salvation. Why? Because Christ is risen from the grave. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Well, if Christ is just a prophet... If he was just a good teacher, a moral man, then the weight of our sins is upon us still. But since Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, risen from the grave, we have incredible hope for salvation. We have seen the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. The Spirit of God has been poured out and has poured into the hearts of His people. We have been given Christian preaching that we may hear and believe the gospel. And we can live for the rest of our days as part of the ones that Christ spilled his blood for, his church. Let's stand. So what do we say to these things? All glory to the resurrected king, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for raising your son. We thank you for giving your son. We thank you that it was your will to put him to grief, to pour the wrath meant for us on him. Lord, help us not to take these things lightly. Help us to stand in awe and be amazed and believe upon this son, died, buried, resurrected, ascended, and glorified. Lord, we pray that you would save, for you alone must save. We pray that those of us who are in Christ, that we would live our days happily, subservient to the Lordship of King Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.